0: Join me in prayer. We come, Lord, before this text in need. We need the instruction of the Spirit of God to discern the meaning of the words of the Lord to us as a church. We pray to that end. We pray for those who know not Christ and ask that you would open their eyes to see the truth of your word, that salvation would dawn. We pray for those who have come to saving faith. Lord, This is word for us that we need. We pray that you would teach us and direct us in your ways. Help us to understand, grow us, and bless this assembly that we might draw close to you and be making progress in our walk with Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We have been privileged to take an amazing journey through these first five chapters of Romans together as a church. The Holy Spirit... Through the Apostle Paul has revealed several fundamental truths along the way. I'd like to just kind of collect them here uh, for a moment as we begin today, as we come to Romans chapter 6. First is the realistic news. And that is that we are all born sinners and enemies of God. By nature, we suppress God's truth. We break God's law. We fall far short of the glorious purposes for which God created us. We are not good people. We cannot earn our salvation. We are sinners in need of rescue from outside of ourselves. This Paul has established at some length. Number two, we can be declared, we who are sinners, can be declared righteous by God. We can be forgiven of our sin, not by obeying God, which we cannot do sufficiently, but by believing God, by trusting in His free gift of salvation. This gift is a relationship with Jesus Christ, who died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of our sin, to pay the cost of God's just wrath against us. It is the gift of Jesus' resurrection life as well. Defeating death is the ultimate penalty of sin. Number three, Paul has established our new identity. When we receive this good news of salvation in Jesus by faith, our corporate identity is changed. By nature, at birth, we are in Adam, the head of our race. We identify with Adam. But now in Christ, we have a new identity with our new head, Jesus as we sinned in Adam, we now, through faith, identify with the new Adam, Jesus Christ. And though our sins are many, Jesus' grace is greater and it conquers all our sin. So we stand today at the transition point between Romans 1-5 through 5 and chapter 6. And as we do, I ask that you please hear me. Are you trying to earn your way to heaven by being a good person? Do you believe God will accept you if you obey His Word? Are you trying to do good deeds so that God calls you His child and says, There's one of mine. There's an obedient one. If that's you, you have missed the whole point of Romans 1-5. through We like to live near you as a neighbor. We're glad you're striving to be a good person and do good things. That's a lot better than striving to be a bad person and to do bad things. But you're not catching at all what Romans 1-5 through says. And I plead with you on behalf of Christ, realize that because you are seeking to please Him through your good deeds, you are actually alienated with God. You are by your very good works proving that you are His enemy. I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God the way that He has provided in Christ. Read Romans 1-5 through again and read it again and again. Pour over it. Pray that God will open your eyes to His saving grace. Pray that you will understand Romans 6 and verse 1 and why anyone would ask this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Pray that God will open your eyes to His saving grace. Don't tell God what you are doing to please Him in your prayer. Ask Him how He will save you. What He will do to give you eternal life. You need a rescue from outside of yourself. I think if you're really honest and think about it, you know that. You realize that you fall short of the command of God. But there is a gracious gift, and I point you to it in Romans 1 through 5. It is by faith alone in Christ alone, not in yourself. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, what joy is ours to say, Romans 5, 6 through 11, I was spiritually impoverished. I come and confess and admit. I was ungodly. I was sinful. I was an enemy of God, but I have been reconciled to God through the work of Christ. What grace is this to say, Romans 5, 12 to 21, my identity is now the new Adam, Jesus Christ. I am a new creation in Him. As I was born in Adam, so now I have been reborn into Christ. He is my new identity. And all has changed. If the Holy Spirit is witnessing with your spirit, right now, I belong to Christ. He has saved me by faith. Then I implore you to grasp this profound truth. Romans chapter 6 follows Romans chapter 5. Pretty profound, huh? Get that. Grasp it. There's not a period End of book at Romans 5.21. It goes on, and it's vital. Romans speaks of the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. But it moves on now at chapter 6 from justification to sanctification. If you're not familiar with these words... Think on them and learn them. Justification and sanctification. Justification is how we gain a right standing in the Lord's sight. How He declares us just, not guilty, forgiven. That's justification. Chapter 3 and verse 28, that's been much of Paul's theme. We are justified by faith, not by works. Which is where I started here earlier. But then there is sanctification. That is growth in holiness. That is the person who has come to be identified with Christ, has a new identity, and now is growing and maturing in Christ and who he is. Notice these quotations here that may be helpful to us. Justification, writes Douglas Moo, is the acquittal from the guilt of sin, and sanctification is deliverance from sinning. They must never be confused, but neither can they be separated. Justification is pardon of sin by means of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Sanctification is sin subdued as the Spirit gives to the believer grace to live righteously. Let's consider this just from a different angle. Saying basically the same thing. A man is saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is not alone. It is followed by good works which prove the vitality of that faith. True living faith works. So we are justified apart from works by faith in Christ, but we are sanctified unto good works. We are growing in holiness. It's not faith that is alone. It is a faith that follows in good works. Bonhoeffer put this so memorably and so ably, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Real faith follows in obedience. So we move now to an understanding of sanctification. By the way, sanctification can be used of initial conversion as well, but we use the word more often of the growth of the Christian in Christ, in this new identity. Thinking on that then, we move to Romans chapter 6. On to the project of sanctification of the believer transferred from the realm of Adam, now in the new Adam, how shall we then live? First of all, we see here in the first five verses of Romans 6, that united with Christ, we must no longer live in sin, but walk in newness of life. There's a whole new call now upon our life. Verse 1 of Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If you get what Paul is saying in Romans 1-5, through you get this question. This question makes sense to you. I mean, when we start right here in Romans 6, it kind of hits us from left field. But what shall we say? Are we to continue sinning so that grace may abound? Why would he say that? Paul has demonstrated the power and the glory of Christ's deliverance of sinners. Our sins are in and calculable in number, they are unfathomable in depth, but he is stressing here in chapter five that christ 's grace is greater than all of our sin, and so someone might object here, particularly one who wants to lean on the law and on obedience to god 's word, I will prove myself righteous to God. Such a person may object here, well Paul, if the grace of God is seen to be so glorious in its conquest of sin, why not go on sinning so grace can go on conquering and abounding by God's glory and for His honor? That's the idea. If you really get what Paul is saying, that salvation is truly by grace alone, by His gracious gift and not by works, then you could you could object this way. Well, we might as well just go on sinning. Of course, Paul says, verse 2, by no means. That is by no means the conclusion we should draw. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Wait a minute, Paul. What do you mean we've died to sin? What does that mean? He explains in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's a mouthful that could take a shelfful of books to fully unpack. I, I can only scratch the surface of these two deep verses. But let me make these observations first. Paul is speaking here of water baptism. These are my conclusions, my understanding. Many would disagree on some level with some of these points. But I think it's fair to say, right to say, he's talking about water baptism. But you'll notice as we move through that he is not investigating water baptism. This is not working out the doctrine of baptism. That's not what he's doing here. In fact, after verses 3 and 4, he never mentions baptism again. I think there's a reason for that. Number two, Paul uses baptism here as shorthand for conversion. The ancient church viewing the trusting of Christ as Savior and baptism as a single concept. So, differing with these first two points, some would say this isn't water baptism. This is actually spirit baptism. I don't think that can be defended, it's really water. He's talking about the baptism of a believer before the church. But we would differ on the second point by say, by, with those who would say that it's water baptism that unites us to Christ. That somehow there's a mysterious, in this mysterious ritual of baptism, we are joined to Christ in salvation. We would differ with that as well. It's real water He's talking about baptism, but he's talking about baptism as a single word for a whole complex of concepts. Repentance, trust in Christ, walking with him as we identify with him before the church, this idea. So baptism is seen as just a single word to identify the conversion experience. Number three, when we repent of our sin, when we trust Christ as Savior, when we identify with Him as Lord, that whole single complex of ideas, when we are transferred from the first Adam to the second, we identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. I can't make that simple. Paul can't make it simple. It's a revelation that we've got to begin to grasp. Romans 5 and verse 12 says that we are identified with Adam's disobedience in the garden. His sin became our sin. And on some level we, we say, I, I don't really understand that, how someone else's sin is mine, but as our corporate head, as the first head of the race, the first man, Adam, we fall in him. We sin in him. and we, It's not quite so hard to grasp because we sin. So that makes sense. On some level. We fell in Adam into sin and there's nobody that's walked the face of the earth outside of Christ who doesn't sin. And so we get that. We've fallen in Adam. Likewise, though, when we identify with Jesus as our new head, we join his obedience. So just as I'm joined with the old Adam in his disobedience, I'm now joined with the new Adam, Christ, in his obedience, in his death and in his resurrection. So think of this. This is not something we're going to figure out on our own. It is something only God's Spirit could reveal to us, that I'm identified with the work of Christ in His death and in His resurrection. We couldn't figure it out, but we need to get it. For the rest of your life, Christian, you need to be grasping this truth. I remember the early days when the whole concept of being united with a new head, Jesus Christ, and its implications began to dawn on me. I remember those days as vital and important. And there's kind of this sense of mystery here. What does this mean? But you had the sense, you had a hold of something that was life-changing. A truth that had been delivered to you that was going to really change the rest of your life. And here I am now. Can I say an old man? I guess I'm there. But it just doesn't get old. And you also don't get to the bottom of it. You just keep digging down into it, striving to understand it year by year. What does it mean? I died with Jesus and I rose with Jesus. But I say to some, maybe you're grasping this for the first time. Maybe you're saying, okay, hadn't thought of this in this way before hold this truth dear. Don't let it go. I died with Jesus. I was raised with Jesus. I am so united to Him that now with His obedience in His death and resurrection, that is my new identity just as I did once identify with Adam and his sin and his disobedience. We are given new life to walk in newness of life, to walk in the new life that we have in Christ. 4 verse 5, and I'm going to take the paragraph a bit differently here than the ESV does twice today. Forgive me of that, but I think verse 5 goes better with verse 4. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I think the better translation is we have been united with him in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. Again, the doctrine of our union with Jesus Christ in the new age of the Spirit. Our identity now bound up in Christ's death and resurrection. We are spiritually alive in Jesus as once dead in Adam and we will one day then rise with Jesus in the resurrection. I think is the idea of verse 5. United with him in a resurrection like his, that is, in the likeness of his resurrection, we will join in now in verses six through ten, then Paul expands on this theme of our union with christ's death and resurrection, as he does so, he highlights an additional implication of our union with Christ. The second idea that we see in verses six through ten is this: United with Christ, we must know that we are liberated from sin's dominion. We look at the death side of this union in verses 6-7. through Verse 6, We know that our old self, you see the margin, our old man, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self or our old man, the point is who we were in Adam. Our identity there before we trusted Christ as Savior. Now, I cannot get into this long. I may, this might be even disappointing to some that as I say these things, but I, I we can talk about it later. But I would encourage you. I do not believe that we should think of ourselves as having two parts. Some teach this, but I don't think, coming from this verse, I don't think that is what is being said here, that we have two parts. That we have an old self and a new self, and they both kind of reside within us. I don't think, turning that a little differently as others do, that we have two natures. That we have an old nature and a new nature. And the new nature responds to Christ in obedience, and the old nature responds to the flesh and to sin. We have one nature. We have been transformed by Christ. So the point is not our internal makeup here at all, not a kind of a spiritual psychology of the two you's. But I think the idea is rather that before salvation, you related to Adam in the realm of sin and death. Now in Christ, you are identified with Jesus in the realm of life. You have been crucified with Him. You have risen with Him. He is your new identity. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What's the body of sin? I don't think it's merely our bodies, as if they were innately evil, but the body of sin is our susceptibility to sin as long as we are in the body in this world. That's you. That's me. I'm in this fallen world. I'm susceptible to sin. But in Christ, the work has been done to bring that to an end. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing, might be rendered inoperative, so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. That is, our bodies are no longer the helpless tools of sin. Something has changed in Christ. Think on this. Engage here. Christian, sin's power has been broken in your life. Sin's power has been broken. It does not mean you do not sin, more on that to come. But the mastery, the tyranny of sin is done in your life. I don't feel like that some days. I haven't felt that way this morning. But I have to keep coming back and through the ministry of those songs this morning I've been helped to think the right thoughts. To know that sin's power has been broken by Christ. Do you believe Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sin? To satisfy the wrath of God against your sin? You say, Amen, I believe that. I trust that. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Amen. I put my trust and my confidence in that biblical truth. Keep going, Christian. Keep going, brother and sister. Keep putting your faith in what God has revealed. Sin's power has been broken in your life. You have been given a new identity in Christ that ends this mastery. Verse 7 continues with thought, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So that's you if you've died with Christ. You have been set free from sin. You'll notice the marginal note there in the ESV with set free. It's actually the word justified. We just don't think of it that way. You've been justified from sin by sin. I don't think he's saying this the way that he typically uses the word justified. That's why the translation alters it. He doesn't mean it the way that he typically means justified, declared righteous by God. There's something else going on here. He is saying that the penalty was paid in full. I've heard the account that in the British Isles in generations past, that death row inmates be placed in their cell and outside the cell would be a statement of all the crimes for which they would one day be executed, those who were on death row. Those crimes listed there until the day of execution came. Then the criminal taken out of the of the cell and executed for the crimes that he had committed. That sheet was then pulled down. Another sheet was put in its place. And that sheet read justified. It's done the penalty's been paid. In some sense of the word, it might hit us in our day as a bit morose, but the person has been freed of the guilt of their sin by dying. Now that's just in the state, in the government, as they looked at it that way, but it's an intriguing account. Maybe even initiated by those who had thought deeply about the book of Romans. The verse 7 We who have died have been justified. We've been, that means, set free from sin and from its penalty and from its power in our lives. Sin's power has been broken by our union with Christ. All the death we could ever die has been paid for by Jesus. We are liberated from sin's power. At verse 8, we look now at the life side of it. That's the death side of it. Now we look at the life side of it, verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. So the reference in verse 8 to future resurrection, I take it, yet the streams of light that come from the day that Jesus won for us By his death, this resurrection, they begin to filter into our life now. So, verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It will never touch him again. For the death he died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The conquest is complete. Christ's resurrection fully and eternally broke the power of death. Although he had committed no sin, Jesus submitted to death, which is the penalty of sin. Jesus dove into death and thereby conquered it forever. And by this means he also subjected himself to the old age in which sin dominated, but now no more. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. It is finished. It is complete. Sin's power has been broken as that penalty has been paid for those who believe. Through His payment and resurrection, Jesus broke this power. Our new head is the eternal victor over sin and death and hell. This is our life. This is our new identity. And there are implications. There are strong implications. Verses 11-14 through United then with Christ, we must consider ourselves free to live righteously. We must consider ourselves freed by Christ to live in obedience to the Lord. Verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This isn't just story time. Isn't this a nice thing to hear about Jesus? This is do something about it. This is the truth. Consider it to be true. Reckon it to be true. We can't miss the wonder of our union with Christ's work, but the wonder going beyond intellectual complication. Uh, contemplation must be reckoned to be true considered to be true in our lives this is why I said earlier get a hold of this truth you're going to have to think about it the rest of your life grab a hold of your union with Christ in his death and resurrection that sin's power has been broken and count this true trust it trust what God has said we are dead To sin, verse 11. That's not, try to trick yourself into believing that temptations to sin are not real. That's not what it is. But it's sin's power has been broken in my life by Jesus and as I learn to walk in faith, my true identity will help me root out sin in my life. It's not a magical formula. Consider or reckon this true. There was a young man that I pointed to Christ some years ago, and I talked to him about this idea, and I said, you need to consider this the truth. God has broken the power of sin in your life. Count it true. And he came in great desperation to me one day, and he said, it's not working, it's not working. I said, what's not working? He said, I, I'm thinking about it, and it's not working. I'm still sinning. Well, he was on the track and it takes time and sanctification is a process till we die. But it's not a magical formula. It's not think the thoughts and you will miraculously free yourself from sin. But it's to continue to understand who I am in Christ. I'm dead to sin. We have died with Christ to sin, but sin continues to tempt us. And that's why Paul now says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The mortal body here, I think, certainly speaks of the physical body, but I think it's broader than just the body parts. I think the mortal body is our physical existence in this fallen world. Our minds, our emotions, and will are also subject to sin, and Paul doesn't mean to exclude them by just talking about our mortal body. But notice that this is a moral call to resist sin. So if I get the grace of God, it is entirely free of works. It's by faith in what Christ has done. But having been saved by Christ, I must now think differently about myself. I've uni- I'm united with him through his death and resurrection. I'm one with Christ. And I need to actively resist sin. That's a verse. I mean, what else could verse 12 mean? Don't let it reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's a meaningless statement if there's no possibility that it can make us obey our passions, that it can influence us that way. We have to act as if Christ reigns and that we are no longer under sin's rule. We have to resist it. Here's what that looks like, verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Again, it's a moral choice that needs to be made. In Adam, separated from Christ, we have no ability not to sin. Don't trip over that phrase, but think of it. We have no ability not to sin. But in Christ, here's Christian what's really different about you and people you work with and your neighbors and lost relatives. You really choose to sin. Now, they choose it as well with willfulness, but they have no ability not to sin. That doesn't mean they never do anything good. does not mean that. But it means that they can't not sin. In Christ, you now don't have to sin. You've been liberated from that tyrant. It's a choice to sin. We do sin. The passions of our flesh connecting to the sins of this world, we sin, but we don't have to. We receive in Christ a restored capacity to yield to the Holy Spirit and to turn our bodies over to serve God's righteous desires. Identity plays a huge part in this. Those who have been brought from death to life. If that's you, in Christ you've been brought from death to life, there is now a power to do right that comes from God. Are you struggling with sin? You are. I am. But maybe you find yourself today and say, that's all it's about. I am struggling to do what I know God wants me to do. Do you sense you're making little progress? I would encourage you, grasp this principle. Much of the battle is fought in identifying with Jesus and acting as who you now are in union with Him. It's not really going to be about developing disciplines, although that can be a helpful tool, but that's not where the battle is going to ultimately be fought. The battle is going to ultimately be fought with identity I belong to a new master. I've been liberated from the tyranny of sin. God has told me this. I count it true. I resist sin, and I turn myself over to the Master who will lead me to do what is right. Don't get the idea that liberated from the Master of sin, you're now liberated. As human beings, we are going to tie ourselves to a Master. We have to by nature. But our Master Christ gives us a yoke that is easy. And He calls us to righteousness. If you are struggling as we are, make this a matter of identity. Think about it in those terms. I belong to Him. We trusted Christ unto justification. We have to trust Him unto sanctification. And so we need to learn to reason with ourselves. If you're not with me here in your struggle with sin, pick this up. You've got to grab this. We have to be talking to our head. When temptations come in, we've got to speak the right messages. We have to say the things to our soul that Christ would say. Jesus' power broke sin's power in my life. This is not a possibility, it's a reality through his spirit that he has given me access to the power that can renounce sin and choose righteousness i'm going to trust him by god's grace i will trust that god has what god has said is true and i'll proceed in faith i don't need to yield to the power of sin learn to talk to yourself Living in response to our new identity in Christ is the key. Paul summarizes the section in verse fourteen when he says, "For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. This is not going to do it. It's not going to have it. You've been freed. This is God's promise for those who are His true children. Law? What? how, How are we understanding law in light of the context of Romans?" Law simply reveals our sin. It brings condemnation because of our continual failure to do what God has said. Whatever law He gives and says, do this, we find the struggle against it. We don't want to do it. When He says, don't do this, we struggle. Whether it's to do or not to do, we break His law. And so the law simply keeps revealing to us our sin. But grace is that transfer from the bondage and the tyranny of the old age under the law to the freedom of the new age under our head, Jesus Christ. I've been liberated. I've been made new. There's a new identity. So I'm under grace. Sin so that grace can abound? No. Live righteously so that the power of grace is evidenced in your life. Christian, this struggle to believe, this struggle to identify, you're going to have to work through it the rest of your life. Sin messed us up. And it continues to mess us up. But we've got to think straight. Once upon a time, in the deep south, an orphan slave boy named Jimmy was purchased by a cruel master. Jimmy's master was a tyrant who regularly beat him and verbally abused him at every opportunity. He just turned it into a sport to beat this child down. The only time that his master treated Jimmy well was when he coaxed Jimmy to get drunk with a diabolical method that the master used in it to control Jimmy's life. He controlled him verbally. He controlled him with his power. He controlled him with alcohol. One day the Civil War ended slavery in the land mercifully. But Jimmy didn't know it. And his master continued to use and abuse the boy. Then one day, a northern army general who had continual military authority and troops at his command, moved into town and discerned Jimmy's situation. He used his powers to remove the troubled boy from the plantation, and he warned Jimmy's former master that he was his former master. And if he so much as laid a hand on Jimmy again, the general would light upon that plantation with armed troops and would render swift justice the former master trembled physically at the very threat. He was entirely intimidated and slunk away, but as he did, his bitterness toward Jimmy was fueled into a flame. In the sweet providence of God, over time, the general adopted Jimmy. And his protection took on even a whole nother level. As he loved the boy as his own. Jimmy also rejoiced to be able to attend school now and to learn. But there was one little problem. The road to the school from his father's home walked right past the old master's place. Jimmy never touched alcohol now but there was still the desire. The emotional wounds ran very deep, but in body he was healed and strong and he was growing as a person in his father's love. But as he walked day by day past his old master's house, the man would see Jimmy coming and would yell at him, Get back here, you lousy slave. You are mine. I own you. It doesn't matter what anyone says. It doesn't matter who that father of yours is. You get over here right now. You work for me. On other days, his old master would see him coming, walking to school, and he would tempt Jimmy with alcohol. The offer was very hard for the boy to resist. But Jimmy's father counseled him, and he purposefully did not take away the walk to school. But he said to his son, listen, you are no man's slave. That man that intimidates you, he never did you any good. He'll never do anything for you in the future that is good. But he owns you no longer. You are as free a man as he will ever be. And in many ways you are freer. You just set your sights on school. You walk right past that bad man. He has no power over you. None. Just walk past. Now, it would be really foolish, wouldn't it, for Jimmy to say, you know, I think I'm going to go to my old master's place and watch my dad rescue me again. Because that was really cool when he did that the first time. And I want to see it again, and I want to see it again, and I want to see it again. I mean, that would just be ridiculous. That's verse 1 should he continue that grace may abound, that would be utterly foolish. What he needs to do is to know his new identity and to ignore the voice of temptation. The temptations are real at times. The intimidation is unnerving. But the truth is that evil master's power over Jimmy has been broken. It's over. So the influence is there. The reminders are there. But the power is gone because of his father. Christian, I ask you this about our former master, our former tyrant. Ask yourself, what good has sin ever done you? I'm not asking, have you ever enjoyed sin? I'm not asking if you've ever gained an advantage by sinning. I'm asking what ultimate lasting, soul-satisfying good has sin ever provided for you? There is pleasure in sin for a season and then there is the sting of the tail of guilt and destruction in our lives. What has sin ever done for you? It is a tyrant that robs and cheats and oppresses and depresses creatures made in God's image. But here is the glorious truth, the good news of the Gospel. You are free from sin's bondage. And if that master is Satan, that master is sin personified, we can, like Jimmy, walk right past. The influence will always be there. The voice will always sound. But its power is over. You're nobody's slave, but Christ. We have a new identity in union with Jesus, a new dignity and a new responsibility to resist sin. He won't swoop in and make it a miraculous fight. Not now. We'll be glorified. The day will end when sin's presence is with us. But for now, he is teaching us, I broke the power. Trust me. Walk with me. Count it true. Don't let sin draw you in as a tyrant and a lord. Trust me as your new identity and your new lord. And choose right. By God's grace, He'll help us grow to know who we are in Him and to grow in making progress in our walk with Him. Let's pray. Father, we clearly need what You are revealing to us here. We need Your mercies. We need this instruction. We need now to put into practice what we have heard. And I pray that we would rejoice at the bondage, breaking power of the gospel. Our new identity in Christ. Lord, aid us to this end, and for those who are still under the tyranny of sin, may they come running to you for grace today. Draw them in. For those of us who have done this, may we walk right past sin's temptations. Teach us to hold our head high. Teach us to know who we are and to live righteously. You've not saved us so that we'll continue in sin, but you have saved us to demonstrate your grace by lives transformed. I pray that through the ministry of the Word here today, through your Spirit, that you will do that work in our congregation, in our lives. Through Christ we pray.